It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production, now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. Started a new podcast called Uncut with Jay Cutler. Most of you know me from the NFL. Some of you have seen me on Instagram. And some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, trending topics, and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life. Former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler, Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Seth Partnow of The Athletic, of Stats Bomb, of his exciting new book, The Midrange Theory, which is coming extremely soon, which is super great. And Seth and I talk about the season so far, uh, his excellent piece at The Athletic about the slow offensive start to the season league-wide, why that is happening, what is potentially impactful, what is more just anomalous and everything else. So we go through that. And then the players and teams that have been most interesting to us in the early going, talk about Miami, talk about Chicago, talk about the Knicks, and numerous other teams and players that have have interested us in the early part of the season. Lots of great stuff here. A little bit under an hour. Hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to have you on normally, but I thought that was it was motivated even more by really good piece that came out for you on, at The Athletic. I believe that was um, Wednesday. And basically, it ties in with something that has been... I, it, I, I appreciate your work on this. And it's funny because our collaborative stuff doesn't always lower the temperature. But this, I think, did a really good job of contextualizing the offensive challenges that the NBA has faced kind of collectively over the first two weeks of the season. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, is it challenges? Is it better defense? Is it fewer free throws because uh, of, of the rule emphasis? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, there, there has been sort of a, a multi-stage panic, both league wide. And I think certainly with some individuals about kind of poor shooting starts, but it's like, this just is sort of how it works is is i think i think if there's if there's one takeaway from 
from one one sort of larger takeaway from that piece, that would be it. Right. And like the way that the way that I would describe it is you could think about a bell curve. And the things that are really interesting and potentially significant are when you're on the real fringes of that. If you're, you know, still in the bell but you're still but you're, you know, towards one end or the other, then the expectation is that we will see some regression to the mean. And then it's those things that are really extreme. Now, maybe that's just, you know, regression, it needs a more extreme regression. And that absolutely can and will happen. You know, the players who shoot 10% on threes at the beginning of the year probably aren't going to shoot 10% for the whole year. But that to me is what makes the, one of the stats in the piece is that the ratio of free throw attempts to field goal attempts is the lowest that it has ever been. Like, that is the type of thing where it's like, okay, maybe there is something fundamentally different here, even if it's not as different as it looks at the moment. Yeah, no, that was the one sort of, that's the one trend early this year that seems to be um, unusual in terms of of what is normally happening, you know, early in the season. Early in the season, turnovers are way up. Uh, shooting, especially from three, is way down. When and those two things combine to mean that offensive rating over the first couple weeks of a season is generally around three points lower than wherever that the, the season ends up. Um, and this is true even even last year, even like the turbocharged offense we had last year. Um, it you know it it was it started from a higher level, um, but it still you know it started the first couple weeks of the season where or something like one hundred eight, one hundred nine, and then it ended one eleven. Um, so this year we're, we're it's 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 one hundred six instead of one hundred nine. So yeah, if, if the trend holds, offense will be down about two points per hundred this year, which isn't you know. Uh, which isn't a a massive decline, especially as the data starts to suggest that kind of the fanless environment of the bubble and through most of last year was the real outlier. Well, and, and that's um, such a fascinating, salient point is that we're coming off of two anomalous seasons now for. 2020-21, that was a large portion of the season where fans weren't there, and that appears to have been a more favorable environment for shooters. And then 1920 had the weird stuff where, the, I mean, I would say the first half of the season was quote-unquote normal, even a little bit beyond that, and then you had the bubble and, and the playoffs and everything else, so it kind of depends what you're trying to build from 1920. And so reassessing kind of back to before that is, is useful, and like the league has changed a lot since like 1718 and like when you did the, there's this great chart in the piece that you put out the athletic about so how you know how the league was through 100 100 games roughly where we were 100 total games where we were a couple days ago and the full season averages it's like yeah we're closer in line to two years ago and remember two years ago the sample we're talking about that was a quote-unquote normal sample because COVID hadn't happened yet yeah no, I think that's right. But the, the, the one thing that is unusual, again, is, is as you mentioned, is the free throw rate. But and I and, and I, I hope I made this clear in the piece is even that is um, you can you can read that even in sort of a way that fits with the normal trend, because usually the first couple of weeks of the season see some really like strong enforcement of the offseason points of emphasis. And most of the time, in at least in my memory, most of those things are about calls which they want to be made more and this this year because of the you know the non-basketball moves and stuff like that the points of of education and emphasis are calls that they want to see less 
So, um, in a way that, that, and, and in the past, those things have kind of dropped off. Like there was one year where it was like, we're really going to call traveling this year. And then travels were way up for the first couple of weeks of the season. And then rest of the season, they were just kind of at the normal rate, maybe slightly up, but just kind of a basically a normal rate. Um, and if, uh, if, that trend were to hold, I think we would start to see free throw rates start to climb up um, as, as players adjust. And but also the refs kind of probably get more into their comfort zone as to what isn't isn't a foul because I think it's I, I think it's it's just um, from a from a visual standpoint I think there has been some over adjustment to to uh, the, the 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 points of education uh, emphasis I mean it, you know there's a play that went around Twitter where people were saying yeah it's not a foul anymore James Harden where I think it was Chris Duarte had like both hands across his chest and yeah Harden tried to do like the the upwards rip move but it's still you've got you've got the guy's driving by you and you've got both hands on his chest that's a foul like like regardless of whatever else and it's just but right. because and, they're, they're so cognizant of the of the arm motion that I guess is that's why it didn't get called yeah I, I think that there are, there are some minor adjustments that are major for a specific player like Harden because yeah it looks like the refs are tuned to certain things that I agree with you like that Duarte play and a few others like those are fouls and I think that another important informational piece here is I mean and, and Tim Bontemps piece gets to this is that it appears that overall not entirely not every single piece the league seems happy with where this is and that the reason that matters is because it yeah you might say that the league you know money McCutcheon and everybody else wouldn't wouldn't say that they were unhappy with the change even if they were just because you know except for like that disastrous ball or something like that where they had to make a change <laughs> but I think what it indicates to me, and when you think about, like, I mean, it seems like the fan response has been good, and that was a part of Bontemps' piece. It wasn't just talking to, like, Bonnie McCutcheon. It was, you know, league office people, Evan Wash, and, and various other things. And so what I think what I think that does is it gives referees an indication, which, of course, they're getting from the league office and, and non-public communications, that this is closer to the way that they want the game called. And I agree with that. I think that – I think that – the league is on the right track. They're not all the way there, but they're on the right track. And so, yes, I believe, like you do, that there will be an adjustment and that this will that there will be more fouls called and they will change some of it. But I, I also don't think that this is going to be the full call traveling, call tra- crab dribbles and whatever for two weeks and then and then go back. I, I don't think it's that way, in part because this is more of an interpretation thing, and in part because it it kind of makes it like i think as an it is more of an overall ethos thing where referees can stay more engaged with it than some of the other tweaks that have been done in the past yeah i think that's fair um but i also i mean i think the 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 sort of the statistical impact will start to become muted as players sort of start to adjust. I mean, you think about there's there's times where players have tried like the pump fake and lean in and then like, oh, the whistle didn't blow. I got to pass out of it. And they've just burned four seconds on the shot clock. If they play basketball for those four seconds instead, um, you know, some of those times are going to end up in fouls. Some of those times are going to end up in, in just better possessions. So like the the you know, to the extent that the the looser, the, the more leeway allowed to defenders um, has has led to a decline in offense. I think as players start to adjust, they'll they'll kind of claw some of that decline back. 
Yeah, uh, I, 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 I totally still settling at a at a lower equilibrium than you know last year. I think you know I'm I'm generally not a a uh, um, I, I kind of generally take the, the, the league meta as at where it is, but I, I sort of thought that even last year was, was, you know, too pro offense, um, and, and dialing it back some is, is good there. It hasn't been done necessarily in the particular way that I would have, but it certainly has helped. Well, and along the lines of what you're talking about, of the adjustments, I mean, two things. One, like another reform that I would like to see, the abolition of Euro fouls, intentional fouls, stop fast breaks, the overall intention of the the competition committee league office's rule changes here is not to call these sorts of things less often. It's to not have them happen in the first place. And I thought that, um, you know, Nate and I recently, we, we were doing this podcast on players who, you know, are struggling to start the season and we're trying to kind of figure out what is what will what will persist and what will not and one of the things that we noticed is that Harden is shooting a lot less efficiently on kind of like floater range shots and something when we watch some of the film on it that we noticed is part of the reason why is he's doing things that he thinks are going to be shooting fouls and then you know the field goal doesn't really matter you know if it goes in great but if it right. if it doesn't then does it kind of get your percentages but he's not getting the call and so some of those become as we used to refer to it to Chris Paul like throwing up some crap you know like those sorts of plays and eventually the end game is not for Harden to get those calls necessarily, though I agree with you that some of them should, it's for some of those shots to just not exist. And so you'll actually get more efficient by not taking the bait shot. You know, that might be one way of putting it. And I also think free throw attempt rates will go up a little bit. And I also think that the other adjustment, and we've, you know, this hasn't been as extreme. Like we're seeing guys like Giannis and Jokic, their free throw attempt rates have not gone down in the way these perimeter players have, is that I think there's been a little too much of ref saying, oh, we're letting a lot more go now. So like players are getting, I think, hit around the basket a lot harder and there aren't fouls right now. And those are fouls. Like, and and I, I think that that is one element, you know, it's the league doesn't have to be a monolith. They don't have to be a single thing where it's like fewer fouls or anything like that. They can say, okay, these ones need to be tweaked in this way. These ones need to be tweaked in that way. And that's why they maintain communication with officials. Yeah, I think that's right. So we can move on kind of to thinking about, you know, again, we're two weeks in. I have to think back to the the overreactionizer and you and I are both, I would say in some <laughs> ways we're both attuned to not doing that. But we do have, you know, six, when seven. When Kate Cunningham is a bust. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, I, I do want to go. I want to wait a couple more games. It might be for Nate 9 and I want to look at his shooting form compared to Summer League because it did look a little bit different in the Bucks game. That's something I want to keep an eye on. But no, I, I, I agree with you there. Playing on a bad ankle, getting back yes. into shape. And like, he's only played in two games. Like, you know, it's, yeah. it's not even like we're not even dealing with like an eight game sample with Cade Cunningham. We're talking about two games right after a month out, which is right. a while for him. So he's, he's actually it's funny. He's getting a little bit of the uh, of the R.J. Barrett. You know, when R.J. Barrett was a rookie, it was like everyone talked about him. At Doug. I can't wait to see R.J. Barrett with NBA spacing. And then he got to the Knicks. And after his after his first year with the Knicks, I can't wait to see R.J. Barrett with NBA spacing. It's, you know, last year at uh, at Oklahoma State, we were like, man, when Cade has some talents around him, can't wait. And now he's playing on a Pistons team that, you know, man, when he has some talents around him, it's going to be great still. I mean, it's, it is a reminder of the frustration, and I understand for competitive balance reasons, though I've argued for the abolition of the draft before and stand by that, that 
the best players typically go to bad teams. And that means it's going to take a little while for them to do it. And that's that's why the and I mean lottery reform was a part of this. The John John Morant going to the Grizzlies, who had a little bit, I, I would say they had a stronger foundation than like the absolute dregs. Easily has led to them coming out of the wilderness not only earlier but stronger than some teams getting a top two pick would. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And you know they've also, I mean, um, I think Memphis also deserves credit for nailing a lot of like the the the, the marginal moves as well, like you know. Picking up a D'Anthony Melton for free, basically, um, is is that, that's that's kind of that that, that seems like it's been that's been an, uh, a useful thing for them. Yeah, I, I think overall there there's an interesting parallel with the Grizzlies and their trade partner in the Melton trade, the Suns, where they've done a lot of things. Like by and large, they've the decisions the front office has made, Zach Kleiman, the front office, and then James Jones and the Suns have been very good, including many that I disagreed with at the time. For the Suns, that was the Melton trade. For the Grizzlies, it absolutely was not, because that was to save Robert Sarver money. And but the but the interesting parallel with those two front offices. At least they used this money savings on extending DeAndre. Oh wait, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. they used it on extending Landry Shamit, which is just oh boy, hooray! Yeah. <laughs> um, but the but the parallel between those two is that both Jones and Kleiman have been very comfortable to use kind of a Danny Ainge analogy, betting on their board, where they've like sacrificed more to get something that they thought was going to be right, whether that's, you know, using more draft equity for somebody like Cam Johnson or Jalen Smith, um, or in Kleiman's case, like that's in some ways what the Justice Winslow trade was, where it was that they identified this is the type of player that we need. And I thought they gave up too much, not in the way of resources, but in the way uh, of assets, but in the way of like taking on all the salary, including guys that they waived like Dion Waiters almost immediately. And so what I, I think that the overall picture is very good. And there's like, I, it's, it's I'm going to push back a little there. Sure. Just because like, I, I think that, that, that the most of what climate has done has been really good. That trade was, that trade was bad from the off. Oh, I agree. Bet on, betting on, betting on your board, whatever. Like, even if you're betting on your board, that's a bad trade. Like that's what, just, the, there, that, that was, the that criticism. Was a, that was a, uh, and I think you'll echo this is that that happened in the Grizzlies trade was that I don't think they understood the leverage they had. Where basically the Heat got everything they wanted, Mm -hmm. the Grizzlies got something they wanted, and there was no other way for the Heat to get everything they wanted. So at that point, you can take on less bad money. Maybe you can get, you can't really get much in the way of draft assets from the Heat because they basically never have them. But yeah, I agree with you. It was it was kind of, it was a poor use of leverage. I would say is 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 my criticism there. But overall, you're right. I mean, they brought in the right coach with Taylor Jenkins. The the Grizzlies also have done something that I love, which is there is no rule that you have to start training camp with only 15 guaranteed contracts. And so, if you have 16, 17 guys, and you're not sure, you know, you're under the tech cap, the tax, whatever it's going to be, and you're not sure who your 14th and 15th roster spots should belong to, bring them all in. There is no obligation to clean that all up beforehand. It might cost a little bit extra money, but if you're, if it's not going to affect your kind of spending capacity, by all means. I feel like I feel like Daryl used to do this in Houston. Yeah. Um, in under previous ownership, obviously, but but they would they would come to camp with. And the Celtics too, I think, would well, occasionally come to camp with sixteen, seventeen guys guaranteed, and then like, okay, um, <laughs> sort of let them fight and and see who earns the spot. Well, and there was also the latitude for both of those teams, as I remember it, for 
bringing in, you know, you fill out to 20 or whatever. And then if the guaranteed guys aren't as good, then, you know, the Rade Zagoriches of the world, then they get cut and you can keep the non-guaranteed guys. And there are some teams where it kind of feels like a fait accompli that the guys that are guaranteed are going to make it even if they, even if it's outperformed. And so I, I think that it's another piece of latitude. Well, you got to talk about Alan Smiley like that. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, I will say this. The Jordan Poole pick, even though he has been very, very up and down to start this year, like there was at one point, there was this run of like Warriors picks where it just seemed like everybody wasn't working out. And yes, Jordan Poole was taken immediately over Kelton Johnson, who I think is a superior player as of now. And we'll we'll see how their careers turn out. But yeah, with... uh, uh, Anyway. Go ahead. I, I I don't totally get Kelvin Johnson. Like I don't I don't know. It's it's um I I don't totally get it there. Like you, Jordan Poole was not a player I loved in the draft. Um in fact quite the opposite. But I mean I it's it's easier for me to see Jordan Poole becoming a guy on uh, whereas Kelvin Johnson is or or rather you know rather at you know a a you a good a a positive piece on a you know a contending level team and there's a lot more just a guy about Kelton Johnson to me like he's you know kind of almost profiles as like a slightly worse Jeff Green well it's it's a reminder I, I think Nate is the person you you can try to remember who to give credit to for this of the like somebody who is more of a three and D and I mean that more in terms of a lower usage player not necessarily like yeah. Keldon Johnson's a great three-point shooter the problem with three and D guys is that it, it for a lot of them one or both are tenuous you know like yeah. either the three-point shot isn't all the way there and like Kelton Johnson career 34 percent three-point shooter currently 14 percent as we record this podcast um is that you have to be you have to be good on defense and johnson it appears from like the him making the olympic team and all that this work ethic is good but i agree with you that the the kind of capacity for a higher role within the offense is is really valuable but like for the warriors going back there like there was this point where they're you know taking jacob evans and you know they they didn't draft amari spellman but they they brought him in and then he was gone pretty quickly and smile geach where it's like oh geez they're really and like one of the guys who looked like he was going to work was eric pascal who they then dumped for nothing and and then so pool looking like a viable nba player albeit Starting starting right now, we'll have to see that that's more um, of a of a you know situational thing because because Clay is unavailable. So yeah, I, I I think that I think that that can work out. Um, let's get to like uh, so the way I described this, I had Nikai Duncan on last week was kind of teams that have defied your expectations. Like who has been who has interested you so far? We're dealing with small sample size. We're not saying that Team X is what they are is what they're going to be moving forward. But like kind of who who has intrigued you so far? Hmm. I can start with one if you want to think about it. Yeah, please, please go ahead. There is definitely some regression that is going to happen, but Miami's offense, like that was my big thing. And I'm still concerned about it from a playoff perspective because, you know, some of this is going to tone down. And, and I mean, generally speaking, transition offense gets worse in the playoffs because teams actually get the hell back. It's part of part of the, the whole thing. But the health of their offense, the ball movement has been better. Ha- adding Kyle Lowry has has worked. And, and yes, I do not think that Miami is going to end the league with end the season with the number one offense in the league. But 
their defense is good. I expected that to be there. And so I, you know, the way I would have described it before the year was I could see the possibility, but I didn't expect it to happen. And now I would say it's way more, it's way more reasonable than I expected before. I mean, my biggest issue with the heat was always, um, okay, I see what the theory is here, but how do they get, how do they make sure they can actualize this in May? And, you know, they haven't, you know, um, some other teams have been beaten with the injury stick pretty hard and the Heat have avoided that so far. Uh, but we're two weeks into the season. So, you know, come back to me in five months and see if they, if, you know, if, if, you know, Jimmy Butler misses games in the last couple of years, Kyle Lowry misses games, bad out of Bam out misses games. You know, PJ Tucker is, um, is, is old. Like, and, and, you know, you start to take one or more of those guys off the, off the roster, like we've seen kind of what the, the soft underbelly of the Bucks roster looks like more than we had expected early in the season. Um, I think, you know, the Heat, you're, you're going to see the same thing. Um, so, yeah, with with their with their team in place, they are a very good team. Now, um, how much of that very goodness is Tyler Hero shooting approximately 173 percent on on uh, on jumpers? Um, you know, does that is does, does that sustain that? You know, weirder things have happened. But at the same time, you know, weirder things happen less frequently than more normal things do. So. Um, no, but yeah, I, I mean, you can't, you, you can't have asked for more from them, but it's like just, you know, it's, it's sort of the pump, the brakes. They haven't answered like two weeks isn't enough time to answer the longevity question either way. So, you know, you, you can't ding them for having not answered that, but you can't credit them for having answered it in the positive either, just because, you know, they've played what, seven games. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a, that's a fair way of putting it. I'm not ready to fully discuss it yet, but it is signif- like it is interesting. I'm not going to say significant like it's going to continue. The New York Knicks are fourth in half-court offense this year, and part of that is they're not missing any threes whatsoever. They're currently top of the league, um, but it's... You know, I, I I think part of that is they're you know they have better shooting, they have better spacing this year, and they have it, four guys who can do things with the ball in their starting lineup. I think that's a and that's, and and, and enough off their bench too. Yeah, like that's like I think th- I, I think that that uh, you know um, obviously Kemba Walker has been just a, a massive uh, massive impact there, and I think that that even though I I you know he's he has never been a particularly effective playoff player like Evan Fournier has been just uh, not quite as big but a huge upgrade uh, over at least offensively over Reggie Bullock just with his his ability to shoot on the move and his ability to make plays off the dribble when player when he gets you know players run at him um so that that gives them you know four different guys who can who can do things to to break defenses down and you know, at times, like at at times, the player who is almost has has uh, struggled to create like separation and, and has relied on tough shot making has been has been Randall. Um, but uh, but still, that's just so many more ways that they can just get quality offensive possessions than they had last year. Where you know we we were all left with the memories of the playoff series where it was you know Randall kind of battering his head against you know a very set Atlanta defense and them playing every possession against the shot clock and hoping Derrick Rose hit enough pull-ups to keep them in games right and I think one of the most telling 
stats from the Knicks season so far is that they're, you know, I brought up their fourth, I believe, in half court offense and their third overall per cleaning the glass. They're doing that while Julius Randle has 53% true shooting. And it's because they're having a more, having more ways to attack, having a more versatile offense. Part of what it does is it sometimes it, it makes puts players, other players in, in better situations to succeed. That was part of why I was optimistic about Randall this year. And, you know, we're eight games in. I'm not, I'm not freaking out or anything too crazy with that. But the other part is that if something doesn't work, whether it's because that guy's just not having a good game or because the other team is structuring things to make life harder on that player, you know, shifting extra coverage, everything like that, and whatever defensive scheme they're using, you have other things to go to. And I think, you know, you brought up Fournier and... Kemba is, of course, extremely important in this, is that, okay, if Julius Randle doesn't have it or the team is, is doing something there, then then you're not wedded to that. And I think that's really positive for the Knicks. And I, you know, I'm still not sure how, you know, the, the idea, I, I think you and I, I don't know if we talked about it in the podcast. I know we talked about it in other spaces, individually and together, that like there was this idea that the Knicks, basically that the Knicks improved their roster and improved their structure to the point where like, that might that basically that they improved to the point where you that they might land where they did last year because last year was anomalous for a couple of different reasons and like they might end up being a little bit better than that but I think that especially the you know the offense is, has been crazy so far but that it makes them a much more viable playoff team which I think I, I don't know how Dolan and Leon Rose are defining success but I think that's a it's an important way to do it when your team already has made the playoffs yeah I think that's right I mean I think that like last year was was very positive and then ended very ugly because as as you as we both said like you, they uh they ran smack into their kind of limitations um from a uh a creativity on offense that really almost creativity on both sides of the ball standpoint and the, like the limitations of the roster and i think that they they did they did some really good things to to upgrade that now you know does how far how deep does it does Kemba Walker get you into the playoffs does he does he get you into the second round yeah in the right matchup he does and then you know you get you get to a high enough level and and his own kind of defensive foibles and 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 just you know the fact that he's tiny um sort of comes into play more but you know it's it's uh um, I, I don't think they entered this season thinking that they were a title contender. Do you think so? Do you think they did? I don't think so. I, I think the the idea to me was that it made it more likely for them to win a first round series. And then each one after that gets gets harder. And it is true that the top of the East, Miami notwithstanding, is, you know, I, I mean, on paper, I mean, who, the full strike nets were going to be nasty. We haven't seen that at all. Who knows if we're going to at all this year. But I have been thinking a lot over the off season and then into the season about this idea, and you could argue both Milwaukee and Phoenix fit this. Where, and if you want to go back to Toronto's championship or numerous other ones, is that I think front offices now are much more comfortable. Basically, like there's this group of like viable teams where it's like there is a there is a path for them to be in the mix. And you can make an argument that in most years, the team that wins the championship is the healthiest team that fits that criteria. Do I think the Knicks fit that criteria? No. Do I think they got closer to it? You bet. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that there's, um, you know, you you start to make that list and, and, and it's just, you know, who passes that post. And it's, it's at this point, you know, we started the season thinking it was 
the Lakers, Nets, and Bucks. And, you know, the, the Heat are kind of knocking on that door. Um, Utah's probably going to have another regular season where we're like, maybe this year. Uh, and maybe it will be like maybe they'll maybe they'll uh, they they will um, maybe, you know. maybe maybe they added perimeter defenders. Oh wait, uh, mm, okay. Well, no, not not that then. Well, no, but maybe maybe Mike Conley is healthy in the yes. playoffs this year. Yeah, and, and a, maybe their maybe of, their offense is good enough that being a being you know having these defensive flaws is survivable. Yeah, um, and it's, it, you know part but part of that is they you know they need to. They, they they also didn't partially because of injury they didn't they didn't uh, really take their regular season offense with them into the playoffs and you know returning Bogdanovich and Ingles into standstill shooters is kind of like well what's the point of having these kind of defensive uh, the, the defensive problems that that front court gives us if we're not going to take advantage of their offense but that's you know neither here nor there and that's probably all the, the most both of us have talked about the Jazz all year. So far, because the the Jazz are, I think I think Zach Lowe said it said it this way is like kind of wake me up in the playoffs, and um, they're kind of the team that's in that sort of like okay they're going to win a ton of regular season games, and nothing they can do really changes my opinion of them until we see like different outcomes in the postseason. Well, yeah, and I remember Jazz partisans get it, like talking to me last time about like well why why did you care so much more about the game when because they had these two games against the Clippers last year and if memory serves one of them the Clippers were like had more of their guys and one the Clippers had fewer like why did you talk about the game where the where the Jazz the Jazz lost instead of the game where they won it's like because I think it's a more representative sample and that was the game you know and it ended up being that the Jazz lost to the even shorter handed Clippers in the playoffs and Part of it also for the Jazz is the nature of the season. Like, they've had a number of games so far against less competitive teams. Like, they played OKC, they played Houston, they played the Bucks when they were extremely shorthanded. And, like, Utah is the best-suited team in the entire league to steamrolling weak opposition. Like, that is, you know, and so... The um, that them are them are the full strength bucks. I would say yes, are the yes. two teams that are best set up to to kind of yeah. I mean, to, and for anybody who watched Bucks Pistons, which Nate and I did because we wanted to watch Cade Cunningham, like it was a tour de force. And even though the Bucks were shorthanded of how that happens, because Giannis was incredible in that game. The the and also the Pistons, like they they if you can't shoot, you're probably not going to get much around the basket if Giannis is Giannis is playing. And so yeah. That that was that was also there, but they've been so shorthanded. That I, I'm happy you brought them up, though. They are the other other team there, and that's part of why they both teams have put up great regular season records for multiple years, and why they have really strong like net ratings and all that is because they are consistently effective in those games. And like as we're recording this, the Jazz are six and one, and they, their only loss was to the Bulls. Um, I'm Wait, let's 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 talk about the Bulls. Okay. No, I just I like you know it's that, that's sort of I think that we were both in agreement in not liking the DeRozan move. Do you feel any different about that now? Somewhat. I, I think DeRozan has been he has been better than I anticipated. The some of the challenges of too many cooks haven't really mattered that much. But I'm I'm still not there on their defense. I mean that is the you know the the biggest reason that I criticized it was was more the opportunity cost that basically they gave up a ton not only in terms of draft resources to get Vooch and to get DeRozan but also in terms of financial flexibility. They maybe Zach Levine said like I'm not extending anyway so you can you can spend all this. They you know they brought in all this stuff. 
to, to make it work financially. But my idea was basically they're this limited team. And, and it, it wouldn't be a surprise for me to see Chicago as a far more dangerous regular season team than they are a playoff team. And it's worth noting, though, like at the moment, they are fourth in cleaning the glasses defensive metric. And it's not like it's insane opponent shooting luck. Like their opponents aren't making a ton around the basket, but generally teams can control that more. That said, they've played. Yes. That said, right. let's just say they've played some weak offensive opposition yeah, in the aggregate. Yeah. And, and, you know. Like, uh, what's the what's the what's the mechanism by which the the Bulls are are holding down opponent rim percentage? Like, that's that's sort of where is where is that coming from? Like, you know, Vooch is is okay because he's large and in the way, and that gets you to a certain degree. But he's not he's not any sort of you know elite rim protector. Um, certainly once like Patrick Williams went down, like then they it's not like they have another one. Like, is, is you know the the couple minutes that Derek Jones is getting is he and and they don't have it's not like they're getting you know a ton from like their set their, their most effective rim protector help side rim protector is probably Lonzo right mm-hmm. um and and by the way he and I think he and Caruso have been great um for, for them and that's that that's part of it too like DeRozan's been good but also they've gotten everything that they that they could have reasonably expected from 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 Lonzo and Caruso so far as well. And yeah, and I, and I would say they've gotten more from Tony Bradley too. Yeah, no, I didn't like. I thought I thought Tony Bradley was a was a perfectly, you know, Tony Bradley, Derek Jones were perfectly reasonable signings, and and you know, getting something from them as as helped. Um, well, yeah, and, no, and you can see like it, it's been interesting for me with with Caruso that you have this this duality, and it's like. He he makes a big difference, and you could see the, the difference in the Bulls in the Bulls defense. But you could also see that Caruso, you know, like I, I don't think he's particularly scalable offensively. You know, he's not going to be a high usage guy. So it's like, can you use that player? Yes, obviously, absolutely. And and Caruso, he's making more of his twos this year, which is you know preliminarily, you know, two hundred minutes in is is leading to him being being more efficient overall. It's just. Billy Donovan, you have to use a player like that in a very specific circumstance, and I think that so far he has. And with part of the benefit of having Levine and DeRozan on the same roster is that you can have 48 minutes where you have a credible creator, and both of those guys not being point guard-sized means that you can use players like Caruso and, to an extent, Lonzo Ball more reliably because you don't need them to do the parts of offense that they're not particularly good at. Yep. No, and that's and I think that's why, you know, Levine being able to do that is why we liked the additions of both of them for the Bulls. And um, I think maybe the, the, the part where we missed out on and i don't think we missed out on this i think it was i think as you rightly pointed out as as much about the opportunity cost because we thought that the derozan move made them better it just was the juice worth the squeeze but like but you know basically taking any creation responsibilities whatsoever off of caruso's plate and like okay finish or you know finish alley oops and then transition and stick an open three here and there and then just be you know one of the best two or three point of attack defenders in the league that's what we're going to ask you to do. And, you know, for a, uh, it's a very useful player. Um, and that's, that's sort of what they've, they've been able to get out of him because they're not asking him to do things he can't do. Exactly. And I do think, I already think that the Lakers will, will regret basically seeing Caruso. It, it like, I don't, it's hard to know for sure whether 
the reason the Lakers did not retain Caruso, and it seems like basically just let him go, even though Caruso was unrestricted and had had more had more of a voice in the process, is that they didn't want to they didn't want that kind of overall bill, or is it because they didn't think that he specifically was worth it? Like that's that's something that I, I'm leaning more towards the latter, especially when the Lakers ended up you know spending what they did on Taylor Horton Tucker, and it would not surprise me in the least if. When it comes to May, as flawed as Caruso is, you know, it's a point guard sized guy who isn't reliable at creating offense for himself or others. You know who else doesn't need that? The Lakers. Yeah, no, that's that, that's right. Um, I mean, I do. I mean, you know, trying to put yourself in the thought process of 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 the of the of someone who, who thought that looked at that team and said, you know what, this needs is Russell Westbrook. Like, okay, well, does Rest, Westbrook and Caruso work together? No. Okay. Well, that's so. Horton Tucker is is if we're going to have one of those, that's the one we go. Now, I don't. I think both of us would, would have been in the camp of, hey, why not just you know get Buddy Heald or or get get a shooter, get get a get get some some more of the the thing that we know works around LeBron and AD rather than than you know trading all of your all of sort of your fungible assets for for Russell Westbrook. But you know that's. That that ship has sailed. Well, and also along the lines of fungible assets is I think they're missing Contavious Caldwell Pope, and they're missing like a lot of like those mm. you know having players. And yes, could, it, could it, they use the could they use the Kyle Kuzma that Washington's getting? Yeah, and even <laughs> though Kuzma who, who was couldn't, by the way, but what who couldn't use the the the, the Kuzma that that uh, Washington's getting? But you know, it's uh, he's been he's been good. Like yeah, he's he's turned himself into a into a very very functional, like the higher end role player. Yeah, and and which, even though Kuzma's shot isn't falling to the degree that we expect, he's become more capable defensively, and that was you know the Lakers helped with a lot of that. And and he you know being Kuzma being a part of an overall picture is something that we didn't you know there were there were times early in his career where you're like oh that's just not going to happen. And I mean is it I would say that's been a part of it for the Wizards so far. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, part of it is, you know, a guy. It's, you see this a fair amount. A guy comes in, gets some hype for some reason, and uh, to some degree buys his own hype, and it's like I'm gonna be this ball in hand star. And then, okay, maybe that's not me. And then some guys like are are always trying to be that, and those are the guys who sort of. You know, tantalize and and end up on on you know the second best player on mediocre teams a lot, and then there's the guys like okay, well, I guess I'm not that, so I'll just be a really good I'll just be a, a really good player who does other things. Um, and, 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 and it seems like seems like Kuzma's made that choice and too much to his benefit. And that is also you know we we talked earlier about Kay Cunningham the, the R.J. Barrett stuff of like oh they go to a team it's like some of some of the times those players get that in their heads because their flawed team at the moment they come in needs somebody like that and then all of it but they're not good enough to be that player on a better team and so you know bring in LeBron James and all of a sudden Kyle Kuzma's role changes right one of the other things that sometimes you can take away over a you know a small sample two weeks and everything like that is what I would say is the case for Miles Bridges which is basically this you know player comes in and I mean I have the benefit of getting this I saw him in person on Wednesday night and you're just like oh he's just a better basketball player and that is something that can happen too will he necessarily have this you know this usage this role within the Hornets offense and also make threes at this kind of volume and success rate not totally sure on that 
but I am confident that Bridges has he has more of the connective tissue, has a better all-around game this year than I saw from him last year, and that most of that, if not probably not all of it, will continue moving forward. Yeah, I uh so this is I think with Bridges the situation where like a like a like a small improvement in one part of a player's game unlocks other things. I, I know you and I think you and Nate have talked about this a lot where uh, sort of once like the, one of the big examples is like once Giannis kind of got a little stronger and grew into his body, all of a sudden, like his athleticism just like sprouted um, I with with Bridges. I think he was he he was a guy I really liked coming in, in part because I thought he profiled as a decent playmaker. Now, his handle was, was his ball handling was suspect for his first couple of years in the league to the point where he couldn't really access kind of that 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 vision and decision making ability and you know he he's he's you know he's not a he's, he's never going to be a ball handling wizard but it has improved functionally enough to the point where he can make a play off the dribble whether for himself or or for teammates and that's that's the kind of thing that that allows him to you know use his 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 shooting ability and his athleticism to to be a more central offensive player um and and so i think that's I think that's the, the, the growth we're seeing. Um, would, you, would you agree with that? I would. And I love the way that you put that because it is it is so important to think of player development as being a lot of different things that you might sometimes see at the same time. And I was talking with Nikias last week and he brought up that he saw more of this from Bridges last year than I did. And like he, he watched more of the Hornets because, you know, he's kind of more located in the area and everything else and also watched, which is crazy because I watched a lot of the Hornets too. But that I, I didn't see the kind of the the inklings then you I mean you saw it with him at Michigan State. I didn't I don't believe I didn't watch any Miles Bridges films. I think it was, I think that was a year that Nate and I didn't get to watch much. Um but he yeah, I mean there's there's a lot more that, that makes sense there and I mean you you see that with players also at, at different points of their career. Well, also they get the confidence, and at times the Hornets needed somebody who could do that. And once he once Bridges established his capacity for it, particularly in in the lineups where Lamelo and Gordon Hayward aren't both out there, which is a fair portion of the game, they try to stagger those guys reasonably. And having a wing sized guy who can make good decisions and who who also like Bridges, he played with force but in kind of specific ways. And that, like, I think that's becoming more all around now. And a lot of that, I think, is the confidence in his handle, where it's like, okay, I can, not only can I just dunk this really hard, which I've been able to do the whole time, but I can get by this guy, can get a shoulder there, and then I can finish or dunk really hard or make the right pass. Yeah, no, I, th- that, I think that's absolutely right. Like, using his... Again, that that's unlocking his his ability to sort of use that physicality. Like he doesn't have to because of that that frame. He doesn't have to be you know have the most intricate tightest handle to get places. It just has to be good enough that it doesn't get picked. It doesn't like slow him down. He just okay. Well, I got my shoulder into you, and now I'm going to elevate over you for you know a little a little you know four foot floater, and there's nothing you can do about it because you know my shoulders are eight feet wide, and I'm jumping 40 inches yeah i think that's great um any other teams players situations you want to discuss we're we're kind of we're right at there so i'll leave it to you if there's anything you really want to discuss we can otherwise we can not um you know i just just want to like there's just a reminder that masai ujiri is good at his job yeah um you look at you look at what you know what scotty barnes has done so far and what jalen suggs has done so far we don't want to you know you don't want to you know 
draw too many conclusions. Like if we're if I'm gonna if I'm gonna you know defend uh, Cade Cunningham, a player I like coming in, I probably it's probably churlish of me to to point to shooting percentage for Suggs, who I was probably lower on than consensus. Um, but no, but you like okay that people that was a very surprising pick when when people when when it was made to kind of uh, the broader populace and it you know at very minimum it uh, it it I think I think we've at least seen enough to understand what what Ujiri saw there right even if it even if it doesn't necessarily work out that way in the long term um, I think that that like. If it turns out to be a mistake, it's a pretty easily justifiable mistake at this point. Yeah, and I was lower on Barnes just because the idea of like what was his ideal role in a successful offense, but it is wholly unsurprising, both because of Barnes' individual capacity and also the Raptors' coaching and personnel, that he fit in so seamlessly defensively. And so it, it is kind of interesting that we're just we're just fine. Like I, I want to take a second to appreciate that Scotty Barnes being as useful and impactful for the Raptors defensively when he's been available. Like we shouldn't take that for granted for a rookie just because we expected Scotty Barnes to be unusually impactful for a deep rookie defensively. Right. Although it, it, it's it just just thinking about that, like you know, just just thinking about this Raptors team, and then thinking about like you know, Suggs went to Orlando. It's like. Wow, they got like Scott, like a Barnes and Siakam and Chris Boucher and Delano Banton, and it's just like it's a lot of John Hammond guys. That's <laughs> <laughs> true, you know. It's so many uh, John Hammond guys. Like, yeah, it's just it's just it's just fun to think about. Well, and and the bet in some ways that Toronto is making is that you can that you can correct. It's such an interesting thing that you can improve what those types of players don't do well better, A, better than other NBA teams can, and that that is more improvable than some of the other flaws because nobody's perfect. And you can't teach 6'9 with seven plus wingspan. You can. And like and also, like, I mean, you could I mean, go to some of the growth that OG Ananobi has showed over the last couple of years. And I mean, I was I was really, really into OG as a prospect. And it was mostly because I thought I believed in the defense right away. And I thought that there were there was enough other possibilities that he could become a capable offensive player. And there are definitely signs. I mean, he's had subgroup games and some really bad ones so far. But the reason that you make a bunch of bets on six foot seven to six foot nine guys is because A, they're viable players, even if they're not perfect. And B, some of them, especially if you're good on player development, will improve enough that they become something that is incredibly hard to get any other way. Yep. No, that's 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 right. But but I don't but we also have to acknowledge that like Toronto's development has not just been in the in the, you know, the gangly, you know, obviously oh, for like sure. Fred, Van Vliet, Fred Van Vliet was undrafted. Like, like you know, one of he's he turned into one of kind of the the like the very good like shooters in the league and, and very kind of kind of a, a, a worthy successor to uh to Kyle Lowry in, 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 in that role, um, you know, doing many of the same things, maybe not with quite the, cause he's not quite as big, maybe not quite the force that, that Lowry, uh, play could play with in his prime, but, but still, um, it's that they've been, a, they've been a, they've been a fun, fun team so far. Yeah. And for the Raptors, the, the, the kind of the lingering question for me was, can they get enough, you know, to, to, to survive their offensive limitations. And I would say so far, the answer has been yes. Like Toronto, 25th in half court offense, but number two in playing the least in the half court. 
So, okay. I mean, it's not always going to work the way it did in that crazy Celtics game where they turned him over seemingly a billion times and got a bunch of runouts, but uh, the, the Raptors being that team. Now, that does lend itself to a really interesting question, which is, how does Ujiri feel about this? Does it, is it, okay, Pascal Siakam is going to be back in the next two weeks, and they still have a lot of time between now and the trade deadline, so you can get a much better sense of what this team is. But if they're in the mix for the playoffs, but probably not going to win a series, like some teams think that's a great place to be. Some teams are less interested in that. And they're, yeah, I think they're in a better spot overall right now, partially because they're not playing in Tampa in the season from hell. They're in a better spot right now than they probably were, you know, a year ago. Bold statement, Toronto is a is a better place to live than Tampa. Well, no, I mean, just as a franchise. Like, I mean, even yeah, I don't, no, like, I, all, I don't, no, I, I think that we can go so far as to say, describe that as objective fact. Well, for me, yeah. I've never been to Toronto, so it's harder for me to harder for me to say. I have been to Tampa, though. Um, yeah. But I, I think Which that should be enough. Should be. <laughs> but I, I think that there is this lingering question. I've been dealing with this, you know, kind of for the, for the last year since the kind of weird trade deadline they had of Toronto is full of these players that I think would be really good pieces on a great team and that great team should value. But like Fred Van Vliet is a, is a fantastic example of that, you know, he's not, not the greatest one-on-one creator, but he's a, a versatile defender, can hit shots. And so, you know, I, I brought up the Lakers as an example of various other places. And some of their, you know, OG is, is that Siakam is different, but, um, and he also, he's also making a lot more money, but so like, could that lead Masai Ujiri to go in a completely different direction and move some of the guys? Maybe, but I'm also not sure. And like, it is a judgment call, just like it was a judgment call last year and in the off season. And I don't know what he's going to do. Well, I mean, he's, he's someone who is, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier about the, the willingness to go into camp with decisions to make. Um, he, He's also not someone who's shown that he's not going to be rushed. So it's like, yeah, no, let's let it play out and see what we need. And then when the time comes to make the next move, we'll make the next move. And, and you know, I've I've made those decisions well for my entire career. So I'm confident I will continue to do so. So I'm not going to. I'm not going to like, you know, make a decision before I have to. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely fair. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Absolutely. Thanks again to Seth Partno for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at The Athletic. And if you have not already, please pre-order his book, The Midrange Theory. We didn't talk about it at all during this. I've only read part of it so far. Um, I was, you know, there was a part of it. Actually, I was asking Seth a question and he's like, well, actually, I wrote a chapter on this in my book. And so I got it then and it was excellent. Really enjoyed it. And hopefully I'm going to read it soon. Presumably, we will talk about it at some point in this space as well. But you can do that wherever books are sold. You can also, of course, if you don't already, follow him on Twitter at S-E-T-H-P-A-R-T-N-O-W. Love having Seth on. And I enjoy this part of the season. I've mentioned many times that I consider learning and exploration my favorite parts of watching sports, especially basketball. And we're still knee deep in that. But that does lead you to sometimes overreact and sometimes overstate. And it's interesting in this year where some of it has been struggles. And so how do you do that? Nate, Nate and I have done a series of pods and kind of stars that are struggling and what we think of as, as real and what we think of as not. And there, of course, will be team things. And, and some of it is also not getting drawn into the early kind of take fest just because 
the sample is going to get much larger and there's no real benefit to going too early. We're going to learn a lot more. And it's not like me saying this team is great or this team is bad is going to make them any greater or worse. So no reason to go too crazy too early. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode that is particularly great for Real GM Radio because it will never come out on a specific day of the week. It's just my availability and guest availability. So that's just the way things are going to go. So it'll just pop into your player, whatever it's there. You can also help other people find the show through word of mouth or by leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player you're choosing, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, really wherever. Really do appreciate that. You can also check out my other work. Have a piece coming out at The Athletic. Looks like it's going to be Friday talking about the team-by-team projections of the 2022 salary cap. It's something that I've been working on for a while and um, it's kind of shocking, honestly, to where, where the league landscape is going to be. I'll let you read that at The Athletic when it comes out. And then dunked on Prime, dunked on Free with Nate. You know, those are still going strong. One time a week public. Actually, two, because of the Twitter spaces gets released as a podcast. And then four for dunked on Prime. And if you're total access, Discord chats and everything else. So can check all of that out. And then the NBA cast, Nate and I are doing that Mondays for basically this whole year. And the coming Monday is going to be Hawks at Warriors, which is going to be absolutely awesome. We're super duper excited about it. So that'll be a 7 Pacific, 10 Eastern tip time. And you can join us on League Pass, which is extremely exciting. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I will try to reply. I admit I'm not the greatest at that, but I will read it. That is something that is exceedingly important to me. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Celebrate Heart Healthy Month at ShopRite. Find heart healthy favorites in store or online at unbeatable prices. And go to ShopRite.com slash well every day to discover wellness experts, meal inspirations, and trends. Shop nutritious. Shop delicious. Shop wellness. ShopRite. Whenever you look for news, you may feel forced to choose between partisans in mainstream media and conspiracists in alternative media. That's where the lost debate steps in. I'm Corey Bradford a progressive political organizer turned TikTok star who also once hosted a Fox News radio show. I'm Ricky Schlatt, a Gen Z New York Post columnist and libertarian fighting to protect free speech. And I'm Ravi Gupta, a former staffer for Obama and school principal who also fought alongside Republicans on charter schools. And we launched The Lost Debate, a podcast and YouTube show for the political eclectics who've lost trust in a polarizing partisan world, but who also reject the disinformation and manipulation in alternative media. Instead of being at each other's throats, we focus on bringing new perspectives to the table in constructive debate that sounds less like crossfire and more like discussions between real people. Check out The Lost Debate on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts.